You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So you may, um, you may be like, man, I've, I'm, I've stood up and sat down more than I ever have in church. Um, this is the thing, like we, we stand up um, in response to God's word as a way to show with our bodies reverence for God. So this is, this is something um, that we will get to in the midst of, of this talk this morning. But if our faith, if our trust of God only is in our heads and never in our bodies, then there's a, there's a gap. This, this thing of following Jesus is always intended to go from our heads to our hearts and into our hands. And yet when we, um, like when we come to a passage like this, can we just... Can we just admit that this story is a little bit odd? Emily, I, I, love, I love crying babies. Don't feel like you have to go. <laughs> um, so, but, but can we just admit that this, this, this story is a bit odd? Like, um, because it's not every day that you're reading in the Bible, and I, I don't know how often you find yourselves reading in the Scriptures daily, weekly, in church. Uh, but, but it is rare to encounter Jesus being in the wilderness uh, battling spiritual evil. I'll just, I'll, I'll give you that one. Uh, but here, it's, it's this interesting moment that's taking place in the life of Jesus's ministry. It's actually the hinge of Jesus's move into his public ministry. And, and this scene, it's kind of bizarre that comes to us. And so if you're wondering like, Mark, what are you doing? Like Jesus just had his identity affirmed as a beloved son, and now we get this wilderness Satan scene. Uh, I don't know what's happening. That's kind of how I've felt, by the way, this past week as I've come to this passage. I'm like, Mark, what are you, why are you, what's going on? And this is also another reason why we're going through the gospel according to Mark, the way that we are. Because like, we don't get the luxury of just choosing the soft and easy passages, but we have to come to passages like this that present Jesus confronting spiritual evil and yet it's helpful for me to just even frame this out of like, let's remember, Mark is trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And just th- this past week, like God himself, he spoke these words of love and affirmation and identity over Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he came and he rested on in Jesus. And then just as soon as that love and affirmation was spoken over Jesus's life, like through the empowering presence of the spirit, that same spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And mind you, this is not like a, a soft invitation to go a little bit deeper into the, like the wilderness. It's not the, the spirit channeling, uh, the spirit's inner like Midwesterner, passive aggressive, like yes, just a little bit further if you would. No, it's like, it, this is a, the word that's used, there's this word ekbalo, and this has this sense of, of to cast or to drive out. In fact, this is going to be the very same word that's on Jesus's lips when he is casting out demons. So this is not a soft, nice word. And yet the spirit of God in our teaching text here, he is the one who's casting not a demon, but Jesus out into the wilderness. And that alone is like pretty tense. Like that's a pretty intense scene for us modern folk. Uh, but it, it like it gets even a little bit crazier. Um, it's not just the wilderness, but it's the spirit who's doing this. And, and the spirit is doing this so Jesus could confront the Satan. And so this is what's ahead of us this morning. We're gonna hopefully see Jesus more clearly, and we're also going to be able to see the spiritual realities of our present age more clearly. 
So I know that's a, a, a lot to get through, so we're, um, we're going to get after it. Uh, and, you know, what's really curious to me about this whole topic generally, and then our, our passage specifically, is that when we talk about an invisible evil, like an invisible spiritual evil, there's almost the same divisive power in a room as like cilantro or President Trump. It's pretty much just like this kind of like 50-50 split down the room. You're like, okay, I, 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 I voted for the guy. Like, I won't go there. Okay, so like it's, this, it's a divisive thing because one group has no problem recognizing that spiritual realities are here, that they impact our present world and our circumstances. And then there's the other group who really, when they come to the scriptures and Jesus personally, like they go, I, the whole spiritual evil thing is just a hard pill to swallow. And yet for three of the four gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and then John is like a mystic, so he has no problem swallowing this thing. But for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this moment, this moment in Jesus's life is so crucial to understanding who Jesus is it, that they actually place this moment at the same place. They place this moment of encounter with spiritual evil right on the hinge of Jesus's entry into public ministry. In other words, like Mark wants us to see that, it's, that God's renewal movement that is gonna break out in Jesus, it's not just gonna be about the confrontation of physical evil and oppression, it's actually going to be this moment where God's agent of salvation, that is Jesus the Christ, confronts these spiritual evil rulers. And we'll say more about that in a moment. My hope this morning is, is that we might clear away some of the debris that comes in both of these perspectives from both like the spiritual fanaticism that looks at, every, like tries to find the Satan under every little rock and crevice so you don't get a parking spot. Well, clearly that's the enemy of my soul. He's attacking, like, you know, like that, that's spiritual fanaticism as well as spiritual skepticism that really doubts anything outside of like an empirical data set. So we, we wanna try and clear away some, some of that debris so that this might happen so that we might see that in Jesus, there is a way to resist evil. That in Jesus, there really is a way with him to resist evil. But before we go any further, um, I just wanna take a moment for us to just pray and uh, then continue to enter into this. Um, God, unless you are the one who brings us to yourself, unless, unless you reveal yourself to us. Um, we, we stand with these darkened eyes and hearts. And so God, I would just ask this morning that you who are the truth, Jesus, that you who are the light of the world, God, God, that you would make yourself known. God, that you would like work in and through me, but God, it would be your word and your word alone through the empowering of you, Spirit, that brings us closer to Jesus so that when we respond and worship through songs, so that we could actually not just sing a nice song, but we could exalt the name of Jesus. And so God, as we come to see that it is in you, Jesus, that we can resist evil, would you help us to, to like actually enter into the crucible of those moments? And could this morning be like a, a watershed where we feel freedom to stand in confidence with you, Jesus? So God, would you in, in empower this preaching? Would you, Spirit, be the one who leads us to the foot of the cross to see our lovely Jesus, who's no longer on the cross but is risen and glorified? Amen. Amen. So I, I think that in, 
in a text like this, like we can easily be lost beneath the weight of it. It can feel kind of heavy. It can feel maybe even a little silly or scary. And so uh, my, my hope is that you would, just, you would just meet me here, that you would meet me with a little bit of humility, with a little bit of grace, but that, that you would also pay attention to what's happening in your, like in your gut. Like if there's convictions that rise up that you wouldn't just turn a blind eye to those, but you would pay attention to those. Because let's not, let's not forget here that as, as Mark comes to us, we, we have this gift. We have this gift of, of the scriptures having come to us. But before this thing, before the scriptures are bound and set, the gospel according to Mark, or excuse me, the, like the life of Jesus, it's spreading through an oral tradition. It's spreading by word of mouth. It's, it's this time when eyewitnesses are there to like affirm or deny the happenings of Jesus's life and ministry. So for example, if, if somebody were to have come along and say, you know what, I, I, was, I was just walking down the street in Galilee and, uh, and, and there, there was Jesus and he breathed fire. And so this person starts talking about Jesus breathing fire. Well, then another person could come along and say, no, 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 no. I was with Jesus or I was with the apostles at Jesus, there's no account of Jesus breathing fire. That, that didn't happen. But then maybe another person could come into that same little crowd and they could say, I don't know about the fire thing, but you know what I did see? Man, I saw Jesus walk on water. And that same person could go, yeah, that was crazy. At first we thought he was a ghost, but then, but then we realized it was actually him. Yeah, that, that did happen. That's the Jesus that we know. And so we have these things where eyewitnesses are able to confirm or refute these claims about Jesus's identity. But as we, as we get into the 60s AD in the first century, which, and the latter part of the 60s AD, which is when Mark comes on the scene, these eyewitnesses, they begin to pass away. And so these stories begin to emerge that, that fashion Jesus into an image of people's preferences. So Jesus becomes kind of uh, like, he, maybe he does breathe fire. He, be kind of, he come, becomes what you want him to be. And, and back then, as today, these, like, even, like these fuzzy, opaque images of Jesus, they started to gain traction. And one of those uh, images of Jesus was nested within this belief called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, essentially this, this belief that there was this secret, hidden wisdom to be had, this hyper-spiritual belief that in the Christ you could have access to this hidden wisdom that exalted you up above your material space. And so it, it diminished embodied practices like prayer and fasting and, um, and like rest from Sabbath and stuff like that. And, and Without eyewitnesses to refute it, Gnosticism began to like gain traction in communities. And so it's into a climate like this, this one of myths and unbelief, that Mark composes his account. And he composes his account to do this thing, to maintain the integrity of who Jesus is. Because Mark wants us to see who Jesus is clearly. I don't know if you knew this, but when you open up the scriptures, especially to the gospels, the point is to see Jesus not just to see how you might live today or tomorrow, but to see Jesus clearly. And that's what Mark presents to us. And so what that means for us today as we enter into our teaching text is that Mark's not only well prepared to handle like doubts and skepticism and stuff like that, but he's also prepared to take the soft image of Jesus that we shape and craft into the image of our own preferences. You know, the Jesus that doesn't disagree with anything that we disagree with, that Jesus. He's prepared to take like that Jesus and confront him with the true Jesus. And here's, here's what I mean by all that. There's some folks who would show up to a gathering like this, who would show up to church, 
And, and they would, they're, they're really here to see if this religion, to see if this Jesus, to see if this faith fits into their frame of life, if it fits into how they live and feel and experience the world. And as sincere as that seeking may be, um, sincerity doesn't always mean truth. Because a Jesus fashioned into the image of our own personal preferences has no power to do the thing we're actually seeking him to do, that is to, to like change us, to transform us. And so this Jesus, if he can't change us and transform us, will never bring about the renewal that we so deeply long to because as soon as he starts to confront those like rough edges of our lives and like all we have to do is push him away. That Jesus has no authority to challenge us. And so this is, I like wondered if I should even share this, but it was a helpful example for me. So just roll with me. Uh, If I were your personal trainer and we agreed that we would come and you'd get up at the butt crack of dawn and we would like, we would do a workout and you like you woke up, step one, fantastic. And you roll into the, like wherever we're doing our exercises at and you come in and you're like, all right, I'm here, let's get after it. What are we gonna do today? And I was like, that's a great question. What do you, so what do you wanna do? And you're like, well, well, if I'm being honest with you, uh, you're my personal trainer, I thought you'd have this together. But like, if I'm being honest, I would love to just like, could we just go down the street, get some donuts and like have some coffee? And if I said, yes, I was hoping you would say that. I would not only be the worst personal trainer, but, but you would remain exactly as you came because I never, I, I, would, I wasn't challenging you because without challenge, there's not gonna be any change. And I know that's, that's silly, but if your version of Jesus never challenges you, tell me, how, how can he ever change you? How, how can he ever help you enter into some like transformational renewal? Well, um, he, he can't. He simply won't be able to because he doesn't have the power to do so. But if we're making this claim that if it is in Jesus, that there's a way to resist evil, then it's crucial that as we come to Mark, who's trying to put the true image of Jesus in front of us, that we do two things. First, that we actually like prepare ourselves to receive Jesus as he truly is, not just as we hope he would be. And then second, um, It's to know that there's an evil that's going to resist that true Jesus coming to us. And can we just be honest, like both of these things are difficult. It's both difficult to receive Jesus because he is challenging. And it's also difficult to reconcile with a real spiritual evil in the world. I mean, even the apostle Paul, he understands the challenge of this. And in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul's gonna, he's gonna say something kind of wonky, but he says this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, because both are difficult to identify. It's both difficult to receive Jesus as he truly is. And if these evil things disguise themselves as good, how... Like, what, what, do I, what do I do? Well, we turn with Mark to see the true image of Jesus. And I was, I was like um, re- reminded of this helpful way uh, for us to kind of enter in and see the face of Jesus clearly, even in amidst evil. And so as I was studying this passage, I was just reminded of this method uh, that is to look at Jesus through the lens of Christian art history. Now, I'm not an art historian, So uh, maybe this will be a little bit of a bumpy road, but let's see, I've never done this before. Let's go with it. Um, We're not the first people wrestling with this scene in the gospel according to Mark, which uh, actually means that there's wisdom for us to receive from tradition and possibly clarity on 
who Jesus is. And so this is, we're actually going to do this little art history exploratory moment with Jesus. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. So for about the first thousand years, as far as we can tell, this Romanesque style, which is this mosaic art form, it's this uh, Christians basically uh, latched on to this Greek and Roman art form, and then it dominated the Christian art scene. Uh, And this is what we see here in the Temptations of Christ. This is at uh, St. Mark's Basilica. And now, uh, I, know, I know that our goal is to try and see Jesus clearly with Mark, but what I want you to notice in these little, these, we're going to look at three different little scenes. What I want you to notice is the Satan. Notice how the artist depicts the Satan. Here, the Satan is like a horned kind of scaly reptilian winged creature. Then what's going to happen is after a few hundred years, at the dawn of the Renaissance, the the temptation scene that we see here, it's going to shift in the Christian imagination. And then we we get this work from Botticelli. And other than like the obvious shift, it's not mosaic, it's paint, um, it's it's going to be like the fresco style stuff, uh, and the shift to realism, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference with the Satan? No longer scaly and all reptilian, but disguised. It's, it's a monk. And so art historians and theologians, they, they start to look at this shift and what they call attention to is that uh, evil's no longer perceived as this kind of grotesque horned creature as in St. Mark's Basilica, but it's, it, it's sort of masked. It's a masked reality that can even appear in the form of something good, which harkens back to Paul saying, yeah, they cloak themselves as messengers of righteousness. So so is it a monk or is it spiritual evil? And that's the tension that you wrestle with. And yet there is Jesus confronting in that moment. And of course, in, this, in, in uh, Botticelli's work, there's some callbacks to the reptilian features. So there's the wings and some scaly feet. Uh, but, but you can clearly see that there's a shift that's taken place. And then this other major shift takes place, like towards the end of the Renaissance and into this early modern period. And we get this image of Jesus, and this image of Jesus confronting spiritual evil. And now, in a scene like this, this is, this is kind of the popular image of the Satan, this winged creature. But by, by the way, there's no winged humans in the scriptures. That's, let's talk about that afterwards, and it's a myth, whatever. It comes from Dante's Inferno. And, okay. but, but Satan here is depicted in the same form as angelic beings, but just darker, and my, my, this is my point, and I was taking this little um, excursion through art history, is to, to notice that there's these shifts that take place generation to generation. Jesus and evil are both reimagined according to, to like the, the cultural sensibilities. And yet, has Jesus changed? Ever? No. Has God changed? No, and yet our perception of God And so the problem that that presents for us today is that evil, as we see in Mark 1 as the Satan, today in like a secular age, uh, it's largely dismissed as like this silly myth because we have these images, these paintings in our minds that that are telling us, well, Satan's just like a winged angel person, like and so maybe today you think of like a, a red uh, long tail pitchfork and horns kind of a character when you think about the Satan. And so it's just this silly myth. Now we know we can name these things. There's diseases and there's uh, like global warming and there's all this stuff that we can like use that has explanatory power in our world. 
And so this myth, it ends up just being reserved for the private lives of silly, unenlightened fundamentalists, which by the way, this is probably what your coworkers think of you because you come to church, which I think is hilarious. Uh, But there we have it. So I think what this means is that in the public square, like in your classroom, in your office, at school, is that the way of Jesus and his confrontation of evil, it lacks the power sufficient to deal with life's real evils and life's real ills. It just, it just lacks the power. And, and I get the tension, like how can a myth deal with cancer? How, how can a myth deal with war or famine or racism or injustice or just like tragedy writ large? How can it? And our world could say that it can't. And I I would actually agree with our world that a myth cannot deal with those things. But you know, the power in the person of Jesus can and has. Not always in the ways that we want, but he can and he has. And it here's the, the problem with the problem. Let's say you dismiss the supernatural. Like you're, you're still left making sense of good and evil. Like you still have to deal with the real evils that we encounter in the world. They, they haven't gone anywhere. So then what you end up doing is you end up placing all of that meaning onto people. So no Satan, no demons, that's fine. Now it's just the people you disagree with. It's the liberal, it's the conservative, it's your aunt on Facebook, it's the Chiefs fans, it's whomever, you know? It's like, it's whoever you disagree with, they are now the Satan. Oh, and and no God, no Messiah, that's fine. Now you just end up making your partner or your politician of choice, um, like you just end up making those people play a role of God that they were never created, never intended to play. You just impose that meaning onto them. And you know, you make a person a God and they will let you down. But God become human, that's a totally different story. And that's what Mark brings us to. You see, when we begin to clear away some of this debris and reckon with the fact that that there are no winged humans in the scriptures, that there's no like gargoyles that are gonna jump off the walls downtown and come get you, like then we actually get to recognize that reality as we know it is pervaded with an evil that's more than just the sum total of like unskillful human choice. But evil And if if you're like a note taker, this is a little definition. Evil is a mysterious reality working in, behind, and through human selfishness and sin. In, behind, and through human selfishness and sin. And the way that reality is presented in the Bible is called the Satan or the devil. And apparently, Jesus's identity compels him first and foremost to deal with that reality. And so let's just allow Mark, if we can, not art history or our present moment, to set before us the true reality of Jesus, the true image of Jesus. And so let's just turn once more and allow his way of presenting Jesus to shape our imaginations about who Jesus truly is. And so go with me to Mark chapter one. I'm gonna start in verse nine, which was last week's teaching text, and I'm gonna read through uh, verse 13. We read this, Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came up from the Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven 
A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so this is the spot where, where Jesus, his identity, his affirmation, the love of the father is spoken over him. He says, you are my son. Before he does a single thing, Jesus now can move out of his belovedness. He can move from his belovedness, not for his belovedness. And then we get our teaching text here in verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And notice this, from, from one scene to, to the next, what you get are these two words carrying over. You get immediately and the spirit. And last week, it was like I just said, Jesus's identity is mediated to him immediately by the spirit. And today it's the same spirit that immediately drives Jesus out into the wild. And last week we saw the heavens torn open and the father speaking love and affirmation and identity over the son. And today we, we see hell torn open. It's as though God's spirit coming upon and in Jesus is this like challenge to the rulers and principalities of this present darkness. And it's like, we're, we're going, okay, well, what, what's actually happening here, Mark? Like what's the nature of this conflict that a, Jesus is out in the wilderness being tainted. What's going on here? Well, look, look again at verse 13. You see this, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the Satan. Have you, have you ever noticed this though when we talk about this, this temptation itself? There's uh, this negative connotation, like there's kind of this, we're like, ooh, temptation. I don't, I don't, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, like, when was the last time that you saw one of your friends was really struggling? You're like, you know what? I'm really, I'm feeling really tempted to go and cheer them up. I know they're having a hard time. I'm feeling really tempted to, like, maybe bring them a lunch or, like, send them some flowers. No, we don't do this because our English word temptation has this negative connotation. And so if you were to say, man, I'm feeling really tempted right now, what we automatically understand is that what you're saying is you are being drawn inwardly to do evil. Because we get that, that connection. Temptation has become this word that links us up with this drawing towards evil. And so when Jesus then is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan, is he being drawn to do evil? Hmm. Well, uh, to answer that, uh, let's talk a little bit more about this word tempt. And so this is going to be a little nerdy, so stay here with me. Uh, in Greek, this word tempt, it's, it's parazo. Can you say that with me? Parazo? Parazo? Greek scholars you are, yes. Uh, it, so three more times in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus is going to have a parazo. And each of these parazos, they're not going to be with the Satan, with the tester. These are going to be encounters with the religious leaders of the day. And so they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to parazzo him. They're going to test his interpretation of the Jewish law, which is the Torah. And in these moments, um, let me just ask, are they trying to tempt Jesus to do evil? No, they're not. They're trying to see, does Jesus, does he actually know what he's talking about? What's his interpretation of the law here? Because that's what would matter to these religious leaders. And so this word parazzo, rather than tempt, it's best captured with this word test. And I think that this word test actually gets us into the heart of what's happening in this verse, in verse 13, because a test is a set of difficult circumstances that reveals the truth about who you are. Can we all agree that 40 days in the wilderness is a difficult circumstance? 
Yes, I think we can all agree that. Uh, being in the, the wilderness 40 days and being uh, tested by spiritual evil, quite a difficult circumstance. And in the Hebrew Bible, this is not an abstract thing in the scriptures. Like even in the Hebrew Bible, God is going to test Abraham, this person who he calls out to be a blessing to all the nations. God is going to put Abraham to the test. But God's not tempting Abraham to do evil in these stories. He's, so, he's confident in Abraham's character. But it's the test that's going to reveal Abraham's character. It's going to reveal the truth about who he already is. And who did God the Father just say Jesus was? His beloved son. So his belovedness is to be put to the test. And here's, here's what I would submit to you. You have the son of God here in Mark 1, Jesus of Nazareth, and the tester comes to him. Now we'll, we'll dig into the, the tester here in a moment. Uh, but, but, and the, the tester is the, the Satan, but um, does, does the Satan or the tester know about humans? Has the tester been working on humans for a little while now? Yeah. The tester knows all about humans. In fact, the tester intends in this moment to reveal the truth about Jesus. But there's a twist that happens. See, because this whole moment, it's not haphazard. It's like the spirit sent by the father didn't drive Jesus out into the wilderness for Mark to like tell some sad story of an innocent Jesus being bullied by the Trinity. Like this is not what Mark is intending for us to see. No, like this is the affirmation of Jesus's identity and the Satan shows up to test Jesus. And he shows up to test his identity. This is about revealing the truth of who Jesus is by him undergoing the test. Perhaps you're wondering, okay, so like, this is great. Now I don't have this word tempt in my mind. I have this word test, fantastic new scaffolding. What's the test? Well, this is what's so intriguing about Mark is he doesn't say. All Mark says in verses 12 and 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's all we get. The story's over. And then immediately after that, we get verses 14 and 15, which will be about like the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, but Jesus comes out and he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then from that point forward, the Satan basically disappears from Mark. It isn't until this moment in the, like, in the hinge of the whole gospel in chapter eight, um, the Satan pops up. It's right when Jesus reveals that his whole ministry is pointed towards him giving up his life for those whom he loves and for his enemies, and he's going to do so on the cross. And then Peter, bless his heart, like Peter um, rebukes Jesus because Peter has a vision for Jesus's life. Peter, Peter's made an image of Jesus that he's going to be the one who will like deliver them from Roman military oppression. And so Peter stands in Jesus's way and says, no, 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 no. You, you are to be Messiah this way. But Jesus is there and he rebukes Peter. And what does he say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. So in this rebuke of Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because for Jesus... There is no other way to be the Messiah but through the cross. Let's, let's get this into our heads and our hearts and hopefully in our hands. There is no other way to follow Jesus but through the cross. It is life through death. That's like, that's the paradox of Christianity. That's the struggle. And Peter feels it in that moment. 
And yet Jesus' words to him are, get behind me, Satan? Bit intense, Jesus. And just like as an aside on Jesus' words, if there's an obstacle standing between you and following Jesus, perhaps it's like a, a past pattern of sin that continues to like rear its ugly head, um, goodness, like there's like a lingering destructive thoughts that are saying you're worth nothing, that you have no value. Um, these words of Jesus have been like these, like these words of like empowerment for me. And it, it, sometimes it feels kind of silly, but man, it's, it's just like these words, get behind me, Satan. They've been so powerful in, in my life. It's like, uh, there'll be these moments where I'm like, am I even gonna measure up? Get behind me, Satan. Like lust rears its head. Get behind me, Satan. Covetousness covers up. Get behind me, Satan. And there's nothing magical in, in like saying these words, but what it's doing, it's not like a charm or an incantation. It's like me taking my present circumstances and aligning myself with Jesus's words saying that life comes through death, that there's no way to follow Jesus but through the cross. So to these things that are saying to me, you're not worth it, you're worthless, like you can't measure up. Oh, look at all these past patterns. Look at all that. It's like, no, get behind me, Satan. And so we can say with Jesus, his words to the tester. Before we go any further, we need to uh, clear up who this tester character is. Um, and why we're telling this figure to get behind us. So this mysterious figure you may know as the devil or the Satan, um, it's not a person. The, the, the Satan is not a person. It's a title. It's a proper name. To, to call the Satan uh, a person would be to too, like, it gives that, that figure too much dignity in my opinion. The Satan is not an equal or opposite power to God. It's not a yin and yang kind of balancing of good and evil. This is not Star Wars. It's not the force and the dark. Like it's not, this is not Star Wars. But the, the tester is a creature in rebellion to God's way and will in the world. And when we, be, when we begin to, to dig in a little bit deeper about who this figure is and where this figure came from, then we start to search the scriptures. What we find that the Bible says is nothing. We actually, we don't get an origin story for evil. We, and I understand that this is a bit anticlimactic and uh, for some of us it's maddening because we need to make sense of this. But let's just remember the Bible is not here to satisfy all of our intellectual curiosities. It's not the, that's not the intent of the scriptures. No, the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the Bible. Not to pander to our curiosities. You know, what the Bible does do is the Bible tells us God's response to this evil. It tells us God's response to this evil that stands opposed to the image of God, which we bear. The Bible tells us God's response to this evil that stands opposed to human flourishing and to life itself. And we actually see whispers of this in verse 14 of chapter one. So go there with me. Verses 14 and 15, we see this, that Jesus came into the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of, this is the good news of God. These are on Jesus's lips. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn, and believe in the good news of God or the gospel. So right here, what we, what we see is that it's, it's as though Mark is really less interested in giving the Satan any more of a platform than the Satan would desire. And he's more interested in making much of Jesus. So Mark turns from the testing to the proclamation of the good news of God to make much of Jesus. 
And from this point on, what Mark shows us is what it means for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so people whose lives were once dominated by demons, Jesus has cast them out with power. People who are plagued by illnesses, Jesus, like they just, all they have to do is they reach out and they touch them and they're healed. When nature starts to like rear its ugly head and the chaos waters start to swarm, Jesus speaks words of peace over them and orders the chaos. This is what it looks like when the power and presence of God is on the loose in the world. Every time evil rears its head, Jesus comes and comforts and he confronts with deliverance and healing and words of peace. And so no, like we really, we don't know what happens in the testing in Mark, in Mark 1. But maybe it's because Mark wants us to keep reading. So in a couple months, we're going to get to this, but um, I don't know if you'll remember it then, so I'll say it now. Um, we actually get a little preview. So this is like a little like Tarantino kind of bit. Like Mark's just, he's like jumping forward, jumping back. So we're just going to go here. In um, Mark chapter three, Jesus, he, and scholars are going to disagree with this. So I, I'm just, you'll hear where I land here. But this is what I think happens in the wilderness. And it, it, Jesus tells us this in Mark chapter three. So go uh, to Mark chapter three, starting in verse 22. Okay, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, that is Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So stop, stop right there. Um, so, so the scene that's happening is what I just described. It's, it's Jesus casting out the demons by the power of the spirit. He's healing people who are ill. He's, he's like, like, he's bringing order to the chaos. And then the religious leaders who can't quite put their finger, their thumb on what and who Jesus is, they say this, they say, you know what? You know what he's doing? He can cast out demons because he is a demon. He's actually the prince of demons, Beelzebul. That's, that's how he's doing this. Ha ha. And then uh, Jesus says this in, in verse 23. And he called to them and he said to them in parables, Parables are these stories that you put along things, these kingdom stories to help explain things in this hidden way. So Jesus says this, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so why when we're talking about the test and the tester are we in Mark 3? Satan is the strong man. We are the plunder. Satan had plundered God's good creation and put things under his control that aren't his to be had under control. And what Jesus is saying is that he has come, he has bound the strong man, and he is taking back what is rightfully God's. So, so no, we don't know what happened in the wilderness. Mark doesn't explicitly tell us, but in this story, there's this connective tissue where we, where we see that, that Jesus, the spirit-filled Jesus, has truly confronted evil. And Gateway, do you know what this means for us? It means that Jesus is stronger. And I don't, I don't know if you actually believe this but, um, this, but I would just invite you in this moment to say this with me. Say, Jesus is stronger. Look, look to your neighbor and say, Jesus is stronger. 
Look to your other neighbor and say, Jesus is stronger. Yeah. If you grew up Pentecostal, you're like, I'm feeling so at home right now. Um, the reality is Jesus is stronger. And now you may have just said that, but it felt like a lie. It, it felt more like a lie than anything you could actually believe or hope in. And I, I hear that. Um, because it, remember, from the beginning, I said it can be hard to receive Jesus as he truly is. But I'm not the only one who hears you. So if you don't believe me, why don't you just go ahead and listen to the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has this to say in chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the evil. He, he knows the depth of your pain. He knows the forsakenness. He knows the testing. He knows the temptation. He knows it all because he's looked it square in the face in the wilderness. He rebuked it when he saw it in Peter, all of, all of it. And he did it without sin. He did it without compromising his identity. So let's just be clear here. Um, Jesus is opposed to evil, not to people. He's opposed to evil, not to people. And, and what this brings to my mind is this like, um, what I would say is like a pithy little saying like, oh, well, love the sinner, hate the sin, which I don't, I still not really sure what to do with. But in the climax of Jesus's ministry, when he's being hung on a Roman execution rack as a common criminal, he starts crying out, praying for the father for, to forgive the people who are hanging him on the Roman execution rack. He's praying for his murderers and he's praying for God to forgive them because they know not what they do. This is the Jesus who is stronger. This is the Jesus who understands that it's actually in our weakness that God's strength meets us. This is the upside down kingdom. See, even in the face of death, Jesus loves his enemies because he's stronger. And later on in the New Testament, um, another apostle, uh, the apostle Peter, he's gonna, he's gonna go on to say this about those who've turned to God in trust through Jesus, through, through this forgiving, enemy-loving, evil-opposed Jesus. And this is what the uh, apostle Paul has to say in Colossians. In Colossians 2, Colossians 2, we read this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it, us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He triumphed over them in him. That is Jesus. We were the plunder in the tester's house and Jesus in his death on the cross like took all of that pain, all of the sin into himself and liberated us from sin and death itself by raising in the power of God to newness of life. So you know what this means? It means that there is no ground, not in inch for the tester to stand on and level any accusation at those who are in Christ. 
You know why? Because what is true of the son is true of those who trust in the son. So when God says, Jesus, you are my son, whom I beloved and whom I'm well pleased, do you know that, what, what that means of us? It means that this is where we stand. And when we stand with and in the Son, empowered by the Spirit, there is no accusation that the evil one can level against you that can stand. Because he's been disarmed. He's put to open shame. And God, through Jesus, has triumphed over him. So these accusations, they are baseless. They are without founding because our sins were dealt with past, present, and future, and they were dealt with on the cross. All of them nailed to the cross. So we are free. Gateway, we are free. We are free people and not freedom to like, not freedom as we would define it, just to do whatever I want to do. We are free in Christ to be with him, to stand knowing that God's strength will come to us in our weakness. That is true freedom. That is where we are. And so we get to live into that freedom and out of that freedom, live out of our belovedness because Christ's victory over sin and death on the cross is our victory. And I'm not saying like, this is something like name your truth and claim your truth. I'm saying like, this is, this is what the gospel according to Mark puts forward. This is the true Jesus. This is the image of the invisible God come to us. And so Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians, he'll go on to say this. He'll say this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The triumph that Jesus had over these rulers and principalities of this present age, we stand triumphing over them in Christ. And Paul is thanking God for that. So hear me clearly. This is not about just naming victory in Christ. It's about living into the victory in Christ. It's about stuff getting from our heads to our hearts to our hands. And, and for me, part of that pathway is, is for me to take Jesus's words, put them into my mouth and say, get behind me, Satan. And I can say this because I know who I am in Christ. I know who I belong to. And so when those moments, when those moments of doubt come up. And, and let me just be real here. Like, can you recognize the voice of the tester? C can you recognize the voice that, that calls and says, you call that love? Like what happened this past week, you call that love? Oh, so you're a beloved son? Hmm. Do you remember all those, uh, all those moments in high school? Do you remember all those moments last week? Do, do, you remember, do you remember when you said you wouldn't do that thing you said you would never do and then you did it again? Yeah, hmm. I wonder if that's how a son or a daughter acts in God's kingdom. Are you sure he can love you? You're probably not worth it. Like, do, we, do we know that these are lies? Do, do you know that you actually stand triumphing over those lies in Christ? And that from like your guts, you can say, get behind me, Satan. This is the confidence that we have in Christ. This is what we come to remember. So when we're singing songs, we're not singing it because we sound nice. We're singing them because Jesus is worthy because we are coming in triumphal procession saying that God has won. And he's 
demonstrating his victory in us as we in our weakness depend on his strength and we call to him. So all those voices that try to devalue who you are, those voices that degrade Jesus' love for you, those are evil and they stand opposed to your flourishing. And yet we in Christ have victory. And we're, we're gonna take a moment to actually remember this. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.